0: in the back. All right, uh, we are in our study of judges, um, and what we saw last week from Gideon in chapter 8 is how we need to be saved from ourselves, right? And this is a theme that's going to continue into this week as well, but there's going to be a little twist to it. See, what did we see last week? Gideon was the first judge where we looked at the reality of life after the deliverance. So, it breaks the pattern The normal pattern of where we see Israel sinning, and then they become enslaved, and then in their enslavement, they cry out to God, and then God raises up a deliverer and delivers them, and then as long as that deliverer lived, there was peace. But then when he died, the cycle and the pattern is repeated again. But here, the pattern is broken because God wants us to see something. See, the problem isn't just the enemies left in the land who pose an outside threat to Israel. No, the problem is in here, in every human heart. We struggle with something because sin still indwells us. We struggle with wanting to be our own deliverer. We struggle with wanting to be king. We struggle with being in control and we want to rule our own lives. That does not go away. So we struggle, in other words, with thinking that we can deliver ourselves through our own power. <laughs> or I could say it the way Clay said it last week, we're all hypocrites, right? We all do not live consistent with what we say we believe. We do not live in light of God's grace. See, Gideon's downfall was not because of his failures. It was because of his success. Because of his success, it went to his head. He believed the hype, and he wanted the honor. I mean, even though he said that his sons and he will not be king because God is your king, the way he lives contradicts what he believes. And what's so interesting is that Because he did not live in light of God's grace, it's going to greatly affect his family. And we're going to see that this morning with his son, who he named Abimelech, which means my dad is king, okay? See, Abimelech was illegitimate, wasn't he? He's from a concubine, a woman who lived in Shechem, So Abimelech has grown up his whole life being an outsider to his own family, which means Abimelech is not going to receive the inheritance because he's not a legitimate son. So Abimelech is a man who seeks to get whatever he can get on his own, no matter what the cost. Abimelech, in other words, is a self-made man grasping for greatness and power. And it's a long chapter, um, and I'm not going to read all of it uh, because there's so much that goes on in this. Um, So let's start with verse 33 of chapter 8 of Judges, because this serves as a summary to prepare us for what takes place in chapter 9. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you? Or that one rule over you? And remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, hey, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit with which Abimelech then hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and at Bethel no, excuse me, at Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and he cried aloud, and he said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance? by which gods and men are honored and go and hold sway over the trees? And then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. Fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And then he said, then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, what's bramble? It's briar and brush, (laughs) okay? And it's about maybe not even a foot tall, okay? So he goes over to the bramble, rain over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. Can a bramble provide shade? No, okay? Just keep that in mind and then come and take refuge in my shade but if not then let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon now therefore if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king which you did not <laughs> and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel Gideon and his house and have drove done to him as his deeds deserved and you haven't because he killed them For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If you have then acted in good faith and integrity with Gideon, which you did not, let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem at Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. Now, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. And this is absolutely fascinating because what Abimelech then does is that he goes to the city of Shechem. The city of Shechem have a visitor by the name of Gael. Gael comes and he starts speaking, hey, don't listen to him. He's not your your ruler. I'll take care of it for you. So a plot is taking place to take out Abimelech. Abimelech finds out about it. And what does he do? He goes to Shechem and he wipes out the city burns it to the ground. And what do the people do? A thousand of them, they were survivors. They go to the temple of Baal Barit for refuge. And he burns it down, killing a thousand men, women, and children. Now, his bloodthirst is not enough. Look at verses 50 through 55. He doesn't just turn to the town of Shechem to destroy. He turns to the bees and he encamps against the bees to capture it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and the women and the leaders of the city, they fled to it. They shut themselves in and then they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower and he's about ready to burn it down with fire. And a certain woman (laughs) threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. He was a very prideful man, right? And the young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Then God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father and killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of jerubbabel Chapter 10. Why am I including this? You'll find out later. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havaf jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And then Jair died, and he was buried in Kaman. This is the word of the Lord. Whew, all right, now we got to jump in this. There's, there's a lot that happens here. But Shechem is a very significant place. In Israel's history. Shechem is a place where God appeared to a man by the name of Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and he promised Abram a people and a place, the promised land. Shechem is where Abram set up an altar to worship God for the very first time. Shechem is also the place when Israel crossed into the promised land the first place they go to worship the Lord was Shechem. So Shechem, as one commentator said, is the spiritual center and thermometer of Israel. And what we see in chapter 9 is how Israel's heart towards God and their heart towards one another has grown very, very cold. This is the lowest point that Israel has sunk in the book of Judges so far. This is the darkest period so far in the book of Judges. And we have another break in the pattern here with this story because God wants us to see something. You see, so far, every leader in Judges is called by God to lead without the person seeking that role. Here, here, The pattern breaks because we have Abimelech grasping to get the leadership role to rule and he hasn't been appointed by God to do it. So, in other words, Abimelech is what? He's a self-appointed ruler. He's a false deliverer. And then in verses 1 through 6, what does he do? He goes to Shechem to get their support and, and make him king. So what, and what's his argument? Well, hey, it, wouldn't it be better if, if one, only one person rules instead of 70? And wouldn't it be better for you if that one who rules was one of us? Wouldn't it be better if I were that one king? And so the people of Shechem agree. And then they pay him. They pay him with silver that comes from the idol Baal, Barit. And Abimelech does what with the money? He uses the money to hire mercenaries. Right? Men of no character, we're told. And what do they do? They go to Gideon's house in Orpah and kill 70 or 69, right, of his half-brothers. On one stone, and Jotham, the youngest, he escapes, and they make Abimelech king at Shechem. What does God want us to see with this story? Sometimes we need to be delivered from the things that we think will deliver us. We need deliverance from false deliverers, from anti-deliverers. You see, unlike his father Gideon, Abimelech, he makes no pretense about wanting to be king and then acting as king. He's not seeking to rule out of obedience to God for the good of Israel. No, he's ruled by his own selfish interests and desires. Abimelech arises as a false deliverer, someone who's not been appointed and called by God, someone who promises to deliver and to give Israel what they want, but he can't. He can't deliver. He can only destroy. And here's the most shocking thing about this whole story. Abimelech is who the people want. They want a false deliverer. And the question is, why? Why do they want a false deliverer? Because they think this false deliverer can give them what God can't. They think this false deliverer is better than God. And can I stop and give what I call a pastoral pause here for a moment, okay? Is this story not a warning about who we put in leadership positions. See, who we elect to serve as elders and deacons, as the leaders and officers of this church, is the most important thing we do. Now, some of you know this, but many of you, most of you probably do not know this. It took seven years for us to become a particular church which means to be a particular church, you had to have a plurality of elders. We didn't have a plurality of elders, so we were called a mission church. And it wasn't until we had elders that we became an official particular church. But that was seven years into planning this church. Went through three leadership trainings. After two of them, I realized God had not raised up elders. So I shut the training down. The third training, I learned from those two, and this is what I say. I'm going to tell you what the first lesson is. First and foremost, here's what I say. There are shepherds and there are butchers of the sheep. Officers in the church are shepherds, elders, and servants, deacons. You can be a leader but not a shepherd. You can have a desire to serve in the church but not called to be an officer. Leaders and volunteers are needed, but here it is. If you want a voice and if you want power, then you will butcher the sheep, not feed them, not guard them, and not protect them. See, I tell them I'm wanting God to raise up men who are going to lift others up, not lord their authority over others. I want men who are comforting before they're critical. Men and women who will lead with grace, not lead with the law. Second thing I say is that you need to know that the Christian life is to be lived as a disciple of Christ which means you are to die to yourself. You are to deny yourself. You are to live devoted to the glory of God by living for the good of others. That's normal Christianity. But (laughs) an officer is one who is called to do it to a much greater degree and to a larger number of people. So if your motivation is not the glory of Christ and the good of others, you will butcher the sheep. And then the third thing I say, throughout all this process, (laughs) all of you should doubt. This is what I tell the men. All of you should doubt whether you're gifted, called, and able to do it. (laughs) If you think you're qualified... I can say with confidence, you're not. Why am I telling you all this? Because leaders in the church should be men and women who don't selfishly seek after positions of authority and power. If they are, they're going to butcher the sheep. They're not going to serve it. They're not going to shepherd it. They will use and abuse people for their own gain and their own agenda. In other words, they will not live for the glory of God by living and serving for the good of others. Why am I telling you this? Abimelech is a butcher. He's not a servant leader. He's self-appointed, not God-appointed. He's a false deliverer. And the question then that our text is asking is this, can an anti-deliverer really deliver you? Can a false deliverer really give you what you want and need? Can it truly fill you and satisfy you? Can it truly bless you? Or can a false deliverer only take from you so much so that he destroys you? See, Abimelech, he only wants power for his own selfish gain. And Gideon's youngest son, Jotham, calls him out on it, doesn't he, in verses 7 through 21. But you know what Jotham's name means? Yahweh is perfect. Yahweh is blameless. See, Jotham's prophetic speech slash parable here, this story about the trees seeking Someone to reign, a king to reign and rule over them. His parable is the key to see the main point of this whole story. His parable gives us a lens to look through to see reality. His parable is the interpretation about what's really going on. So what is really going on? There is a battle raging in Israel. And it's not from external enemies but an inward battle for their minds and for their hearts over who should rule over them. Who's worthy of it? Self-appointed, power-hungry, bramble Abimelech? Or Yahweh, who's perfect? Blame. See, so the question here is, why would you look to a self-appointed anti-deliverer like Abimelech when Yahweh is perfect? Remember chapter 8, verses 33 through 35 is the summary, right? After Gideon died, the people of Israel again whored after other gods, and they specifically made Baal-berit their god, and the people of Israel, we are told, did not remember the Lord their god who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done. Israel has turned away from and forgotten God, and they're worshiping a false God, a false God who promises to keep covenant and bless them. But this false God can't, and that's what this parable is all about. Instead, this parable is showing us what false deliverers will do. What will they do? They will only take, burn, and destroy. See, notice in Joseph's story in verse 8 that we got talking trees, which made me wonder if this is where Tolkien got that concept with the ants. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a text. But we have talking trees, but what are these talking trees wanting? They're wanting a king to reign and rule over them. So the question about this parable is this, what kind of king is fit to reign and rule over Israel? Well, notice who the trees go to first. They go to the olive tree, and what happens? He refuses. then they go to the fig tree, and what happens? He refuses. Then they go to the vine, and he refuses. Then they go to the bramble, and he accepts. Two questions here. Which of the candidates are most fit to be king? Which is more valuable? Which is more beneficial? Which is more productive, the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, or the bramble? And the second question, why did the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, why do they refuse to be king over the trees? But the bramble thinks he's worthy of it. Well, think about it. The olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, aren't they more productive? (laughs) aren't they more beneficial, Um, aren't they more valuable, and yet they refuse to set themselves up as king. Why? Because none of them are fit to be king, and they know that. Answer to the first question, none of them are fit to be king. This is why the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, they refuse. Why? Because they know their place. They know their purpose. They don't try to be bigger than they are. They aren't grasping for greatness. But the bramble is. The worthless bramble tries to become something it can't. It can't provide shade, okay? What can Bramble do? It can only be used to burn things. Abimelech is the worthless Bramble, who's trying to be greater than he is. And because of it, all he can do is burn everything down. See, Jotham's story, it's designed to show how foolish it is to turn away from God as the deliverer and king, And to look to a false deliverer. (sighs) See, Baal, and Abimelech may promise a lot. They may promise to save. They may promise to bless. They may promise to fulfill Israel. But they can't fulfill their promise. They can't deliver. They can't save. They can only take. They can only burn. They can only destroy. See, look at verse 22. Abimelech ruled Israel for three years. And then if you look, we didn't read it, but in verses 42 through 49, I told you about it. What does he do? He burns everything down. He burns the city of Shechem. He burns their fields. He kills every man, woman, and child. And then the thousand that flee to save their lives, where do they go? They go to the temple of Barbarit. For what? Shade refuge, but there is none, and Abimelech burns it all down. (sighs) And then, hey, that's not enough. Let's now go to the next town. (laughs) And that's where we have that funny story of this. Notice the woman's not named. She's an insignificant nobody who takes out a person who thinks he's somebody. This is what anti-false deliverers do. They burn everything to the ground. And the story of Abimelech, it shows us that we need to be delivered from the things that we think will deliver us. We need to be delivered from our false deliverers. And I want you to notice something as well. (laughs) again, we didn't read the whole thing, but man, what is everybody, almost everybody in this passage doing? All of the people here are all opportunistic. They're all seeking advantages for themselves. Abimelech is seeking advantage for himself. The worthless and reckless mercenaries that he hires are seeking an advantage for themselves. The people of Shechem are seeking an advantage for themselves. Gael and Zebul, two names that are mentioned in there. They're seeking an advantage. What are they all doing? They're all grasping for greatness without any regard for God and without any regard for anybody else. In other words, this is what happens when we forget and don't remember God. It starts us on a path where we become consumed with ourselves where we only think of ourselves. And when we only think of ourselves, we're not thinking about others. So when we become consumed with ourselves, what what does that usually lead to? It usually leads to harm towards others, does it not? Where When we only care about ourselves, what do we do? We use other people for our own selfish gain. We seek to exalt ourselves by making others small. We try to make ourselves big because we think we're significant. And when we think we're significant, we look at others as less significant and we treat them accordingly. Doesn't this story show us the human condition? When we forget and forsake God to chase after false gods, why? Because we're consumed with self. It's because we're consumed with self. You see, whatever we turn to to save us, to fill us, to satisfy us, to deliver us, it can't. It can't. And because it can't, where does that leave us? Empty. But not just empty in a vacuum. <laughs> empty with a more intense longing to be filled So much so that we keep turning to one thing after another thing after another thing to fill us. And because it can't, what does it do? It burns us up inside. And then we destroy anyone or anything that gets in the way with us getting what we want. Haven't you discovered this yet? Haven't you discovered that when you turn away from God to chase after worthless bramble, to chase after false deliverers, that it not only burns you up, but it also burns others up, doesn't it? So what are the false deliverers? You know what they are, (laughs) right? What are they in your life? What are the things that you're looking to that you're turning away from God, looking to this thing to fill you, to save you, to deliver you? What is it? Is it a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you uh, cannot lose? Is it the failure you cannot shake and let go of? Is it the child that you can't control? Is it the opportunity that was lost, the dream that didn't come true? Is it food? Is it shopping? Is it pornography? Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it being the perfect parent? Being the perfect spouse? Being the perfect child? The list of false deliverers is endless, isn't it? It's endless. And because the list is endless, doesn't this reveal that we are all longing to be delivered from something? (sighs) And doesn't Jotham's parable tell us that the real issue is who is worthy to do it? Who is worthy to deliver and be king over our lives? God who is perfect and blameless or false deliverers, worthless bramble like Abimelech? All of us need a king to deliver us, but what kind of king is worthy to truly do it? What kind of king can truly bless and truly satisfy? What kind of king is faithful to and can fulfill the promises that he makes? It can't be anything in creation. That's why the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, they refuse to be king because they know they can't be. They know they weren't made to be. So stop looking to them to be. Only Yahweh is worthy. And there are two absolutely amazing things about our text, okay? (laughs) The first is look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Uh, I got to fly. Did you notice there's a break, another break in the pattern with Tola and Jair? Did you notice that this time there's no mention of a foreign enemy oppressing Israel? Did you notice that there's no mention of Israel crying out to God for deliverance? And yet, after Abimelech, God raises up Tola and Jair to save Israel. So, what in the world's going on here? There is no foreign enemy. Why? Because Israel needs to be saved from themselves. Israel needs to be delivered from themselves. They have completely abandoned God. They have sunk so low that they choose an anti-deliverer, a self-appointed deliverer, a man grasping for greatness. And then nowhere does Israel cry out to God and repent. And yet God sends Tola and Jair to save Israel when Israel doesn't cry out to be saved. Holy cow, what is this? This is sheer and amazing grace, is it not? God saves Israel from themselves even when they didn't ask him to. So doesn't this show us that only God is worthy to be king over our lives? Why? Why? Because he's the only king that is gracious when you fail him. See, (laughs) second amazing thing throughout this whole passage. Do you realize that God is not mentioned at all by his personal covenant name, Yahweh? From chapter 8, verse 33, all the way to chapter 10, verse 5. Why is that so significant? Because the covenant name, Yahweh... The Lord. See, this is a story about a society and a ruler who desire to push Yahweh out of the picture completely. Where Yahweh's not considered, nor is he worshipped. Instead, a false god is being worshipped. And what is that false god's name? Baal Berit. What does Berit mean? Covenant. Israel's calling Baal. Baal the Lord of the covenant. What covenant did Baal make with Israel? In what way could Baal possibly be the Lord of the covenant? In what way did he promise something to Israel? This is what's so fascinating, because what, Baal's the storm and fertility god, right? So he's the one who supposedly brings the rain to provide The fertilization so that there is a rich harvest. Well, how did Baal fulfill his promise to bless Israel? (laughs) Answer, he didn't. He couldn't. (laughs) Abimelech burned it all down. (laughs) There is no refuge in Baal. There is no deliverance from Baal. There is no salvation from Baal. He's a false god. He's a false deliverer, just like Abimelech. There's only fire and destruction. And this is what's absolutely fascinating. Only Yahweh is faithful to the covenant he made to Israel. Where did Yahweh make the covenant? To Israel. To Abram and Shechem. And what was that covenant? What was that promise? Abraham, you will be my people, and I will be your God, period, period. In other words, God's covenantal promise was to be gracious to Israel no matter what. God promised to be faithful towards Israel when Israel is unfaithful towards him, which means the true Deliverer, the only king worthy to rule over us is the one who is gracious, is the one who is perfect, is the one who is blameless, is the one who is faithful to fulfill his promise. The true Lord of the covenant, in other words, is the God of grace in Jesus This is why Philippians 2 was our scripture reading, because what does Paul tell us? Jesus did not grasp for greatness. Jesus did not hold on to his equality with God for his own selfish gain. Instead, what did he do? He let it go for your good. Jesus let go of his glorious God to take on the role of a servant who empties himself, who pours himself out, who dies on a cross. For who? For self-centered, selfish people who think they're more important than God. Who's worthy to reign and rule over us? Who is the true deliverer? Only the one who was willing to give up everything so that you and I could have everything in him. Amen. All right.